Hello, everyone. My name is Andrew Cron. It's a privilege to share with you the CCS Spotlight on the Next Generation. The Spotlight on the Next Generation is an innovative series of videos and podcasts that feature five early career Canadian cardiology specialists having a conversation with global cardiovascular leaders. With this initiative, we're hoping to foster this back and forth dialogue between our future leaders and some of the giants in cardiology. Each of these will be a five to 10 minute conversation that will cover emerging diagnostic and therapeutic areas in a variety of fields, including heart failure, interventional cardiology, cardiac surgery, cardio-oncology, and preventive cardiology. I hope you enjoy them. Hi, I'm Dr. Simone Cowan, and I'm honored to be meeting Dr. Clyde Yancey, a global leader in heart failure, who's joining me today for the CCS Spotlight on the Next Generation. I'd like to just start off by saying that when my patients ask me, why did I go into cardiology as opposed to other specialties? I'm always very excited to say that I chose a career in cardiology because it's one field where there's so much research that I think we have the tools, treatments and techniques where we can really help patients. And the last few years has been no disappointment in heart failure with reduced ejection fraction. We've had so many exciting trials, and I'd try, like to get your perspective of how you think we should be using some of these new agents with the new mechanistic pathways. You know, I'm delighted to visit with you today, um, Simone. Um, I have been in this space for 30 years, and I love that the target of this discussion is focused on the next generation. My generation has been an arc of about 30 years. That's how long I've been focused in heart failure as a cardiologist. And I think about the things, not just in the last several years, Simone, but the things I've seen over those 30 years, it's remarkable. We've gone from believing that digoxin was the very best therapy available for heart failure to glucose-lowering agents now that seem to eclipse anything we've ever used before. We've gone from only placing ICDs in patients who had fortuitously enough survived sudden death to now anticipating sudden death and, and planning primary prevention devices. We've gone from placing right heart catheters in critical care settings under strict ICU level care to now in planning small lifelong PA monitors that patients manage at home in their bedroom with a pillow. You think about the magnitude of these changes. 30 years ago, 20 years ago, guideline directed medical therapy was non-existent. We had some insight on ACE inhibitors. We had some insight that was evolving on beta blockers. What do you see as the next steps? How should we use these new treatments like dapagliflozin and empagliflozin in heart failure with reduced ejection fraction? What's really important, what's really important is that finally, finally, we have a surfeit of choices, meaning that we have to think carefully about how do we partition these therapies and align the therapies with the best likelihood for benefit. They come at a cost. So we can't be glib with how we prescribe these therapies because patients have to find a way to access the care. Fortunately in Canada, it may be a bit easier, 
but there is still a cost just in terms of the burden of polypharmacy. So I love the fact that we're transitioning now away from finding anything, something that will work to understanding that we can start thinking about what works in the right time and the right setting for each particular patient. And as we narrow down the surrogate markers, the biomarkers, the metabolomics, the proteomics, it is fascinating to think that we can finally get right on the precipice of personalized medicine as a way to treat heart failure. That's a fabulous concept worth deep exploration and patients will benefit from something that's more targeted, more purposeful, more effective. Yeah, precision medicine, I think it's quite exciting as well. I remember a number of years ago, there was the unveiling of the AHAF trial where they were looking at the use of isosorbide and hydralazine in African-American identified black patients. And that showed a remarkable 40% reduction in mortality. How do you see using some of these newer agents on the background of hydralazine, isosorbide? All of these indicated therapies, and we have this incredible juggernaut of a therapy known as the Arnie compound. And we recognize that ostensibly the combination of isosorbide and nitrate and hydralazine and the Arnie compound, the combination of an angiotensin receptor antagonist and secubitril work via the same putative mechanism, the upregulation of nitric oxide. You certainly don't want to duplicate that effort for fear of hypotension. But I'm smiling now because you've basically found a very tactful way of telling everyone how old I am. Because you know that I was one of the principal investigators for the AHEF trial, published in 2004, commenced in about 2000, 2001. And here it is nearly 20 years later, and we're having this conversation. But I still have exquisite recall of what we did and why we did it, which is really the most important piece of this. It really was a proof of concept. From the original Veterans Affairs vasodilator heart failure trials, where the combination of nitrates and hydralazine versus placebo demonstrated a modest benefit overall, but an, an important subgroup benefit in self-described Blacks in a small number, we then took that signal and prospectively studied it in an appropriately powered, double-blind, randomized, placebo-controlled trial and developed one of the first composite endpoints, which was a quality of life measure, a hospitalization measure, and a mortality measure. So the proof of concept was several things. One, taking a subgroup with a positive signal and testing it prospectively. Two, testing a first ever composite endpoint in a heart failure trial, thinking about when we executed this trial. And three, taking a homogeneous patient population, a black population, who prior to that time really was under heavy scrutiny for the absence of any data to suggest that any of the preceding therapies were uniquely beneficial in Blacks, including beta blockers, including ACE inhibitors. We execute this trial, and on all three of those issues, the proof of concept was validated. But the important part about that is if we can identify a genomic signature that anticipates responsiveness, that allows us to, once again, to use my favorite word, partition those patients with HEFREF who might have a unique response to nitrates and hydralazine, and we can better orchestrate how the therapy should go. So it's always exciting. 
again, it's for the next generation, it's always exciting. Whatever you do, whether it's cardiology or not, make certain you do something. And in your own estimation, it's always exciting. This is always exciting. Can you talk a little bit about some of the performance-based uh, indicators that you've worked on in the United States in terms of get with the guidelines? So happy to discuss that because this is a big part of my career, about 15-year experience. But it's a fascinating, fascinating exercise. And it's all about how do we use quality improvement to enable best outcomes, whether it's guidelines, performance measures, doing the randomized control trials. The next step after we go through discovery science is implementation, implementation driven by quality measures. And that's the space where we've been living lately. That's something I'm quite interested in, particularly because I'm trying to develop a clinical pathway here at my hospital, St. Paul's. I think that the closer we get to standardizing care and standardizing the initiation of these uh, guideline-based treatments, I think we're able to offer our patients uh, some quality standards and some quality care. No, I think that's terrific. I don't think we will serve the next generation well if we don't make two other comments that are incredibly important. Worldwide now, worldwide, we understand the importance of equity in healthcare. And my friends in Canada are not immune from the tensions that we have felt in the United States. And as much as we can think about how we engage with patients, how we pursue our science, and particularly how we pursue our policy, I think we can work collectively at an international level to reduce these issues of disparity. The last thing I'll say is incredibly important as well. We've learned much from the COVID-19 crisis, but what we really understand is the necessity for wellness. And as we are evolving our careers, particularly in the next generation, I love that articulation, we really need to think about imbuing wellness as part of the obligatory, <laughs> obligatory foundation and professional maturation. Yes, it's exciting and I've tried to share with you my excitement, but you also need to be able to thrive and being able to thrive means that you've embraced wellness. So once again, I'm delighted to have visited with you and to have this conversation and I'm looking forward to being a participant in the upcoming Congress. It should be a blast. Thank you. Thank well, you, thank I've you. enjoyed our discussion. Same here, Simone.